we're, we're incredibly lucky to have Wolfgang Streich with us this evening. Uh, in terms of the work of the last decade, uh, Wolfgang is, the, I think, the most significant radical theorist, radical analyst of advanced capitalism and one might say its discontents. By contrast to both Piketty and Andrew Glynn, both of whom have written tremendous books uh, on capitalism, um, capital itself and capitalism unleashed by Andrew Glynn, Strake has developed an analysis of capitalism which is grounded in history, in disequilibrium and change, and it's very powerful. Over the, um, I think over the whole period going back to the 1980s, he's been the dominant figure in German industrial sociology and in German political, political economy. Um, uh, he's, he's, the, um, he's the director of the Max Planck Institute in Köln, which is the big job to, to have. Um, and he's been, he was a major figure in the, he played a major role in development of neocorporatism, and in 1985, he came, first time I met him, he came and gave a lecture in Oxford. In fact, Colin Crouch had invited him to do this. I was at that stage a perfectly innocent and decent economist. I taught macroeconomics. <laughs> and Wolfgang's lecture was called Beneficial Constraints. And in this lecture... He explained how if the government puts constraints on companies, it makes, makes it difficult for companies to fire people, what companies will do will then be to invest in the skills of these employees in order to try and expand their exports. And this idea that you could have constraints which would be beneficial uh, was, of course, a very radical idea for an economist to be confronted with, but that was really the, I think it was really the moment I was completely persuaded by, he's a very persuasive person, by the way. Uh, that was the moment, I think, when I really thought, oh God, I've got, got to give up economics and become a political economist. It's much too, much too much fun. And so, um, Wolfgang, over to you. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me. Um, I, uh, the, the book will not be recapitulated in this lecture. It's out there. You can buy it. It's, a, it's worth the money. It's, good. it's a good book. <laughs> what I will do is I will elaborate on a specific aspect uh, in the book and add a few insights that uh, uh, came to me during the two years after the book was finished. And, and you will see uh, from the lecture how it links to the to the various uh, uh, subjects of the uh, of the analysis. The title 
Let me see if I can get this here. Yeah. The title is The Rise of the European Consolidation State. This process follows the displacement of the classical text state or Steuerstaat in Schumpeter's word, by which uh, the, the, the displacement by what I have called the debt state. So, Steuerstaat, text state, debt state, consolidation state. A process that began in the 1980s in all rich capitalist democracies. The, the rise of the debt state. Consolidation is the contemporary response to the fiscal crisis of the state envisaged as early as the late 1960s by the uh, Marxist theoretician James O'Connor, incidentally, when, when post-war growth had come to an end. Both the long-term increase in public debt and the current global attempts to bring it under control were intertwined with the financialization of advanced capitalism and its complex uses and discontents. As I will show, the ongoing shift towards a consolidation state involves a deep rebuilding of the political institutions of post-war democratic capitalism and its political and its international order, in particular in Europe, where consolidation coincides with an unprecedented increase in the scale of political rule under European Monetary Union and the transformation of the latter into an asymmetric fiscal stabilization regime. In the following, I begin by briefly recounting the development that led to current consolidation efforts with the financial crisis of 2008 as something like a critical juncture. Then I will sketch out the domestic and international politics of fiscal consolidation at a time of low growth or even secular stagnation, as um, Larry Summers now calls it, a long-term increase in economic inequality and record overall indebtedness. So the three things, uh, low growth, inequality, and indebtedness. Uh, I, uh, in the, this, in the uh, question and answer session, we can look at uh, the particularities of the European development. What I will do now is uh, outline the general process. So the first part is, uh, is called from, from the Fiscal Crisis of the State to the Great Recession. And I may interject that the idea of the book as well as of this lecture is to put these uh, critical dramatic events into a historical uh, segment uh, so that we are not uh, uh, made to believe that uh, a thing like 2008 is simply something that happens out of the blue. It, it, it hangs in a longer, logical, uh, explainable um, uh, sequence that uh, can, that is the, the most, in, much more interesting than the event is the, the, the history of the event. So by the mid-1970s, the accumulated debt of states in the OECD, in the, in the OECD world, began to increase steeply and steadily. So this is an uh, this is an, an an average, but it doesn't matter if you take the individual countries; they are all basically the same. 
indebtedness rose by and large simultaneously, regardless of country, national economic performance, or the political complexion of the government of the day. North Sea oil made a difference for Britain, unification for Germany, the rise and fall of defense spending for the United States, but always only temporarily. Indebtedness increased for two decades until the mid-1990s, when debt levels seemed to stabilize. After 2008, however, they rapidly returned to the long-term trend line. A growing level of public debt is the result of cumulative non-Keynesian deficits in public budgets. Non-Keynesian because the Keynesian deficits are to be wiped out in the uh, subsequent upswing. Uh, an enduring in inadequacy of government revenue compared to government spending. A popular explanation for this is offered by the public choice school of uh, institutional economics, which conceives public finance as a poorly managed common pool from which democratic electoral majorities and office-seeking politicians may satisfy ever more extravagant collective demands without having to assume responsibility for the costs. As I have shown, however, in the book, the secular rise of public debt in the OECD countries coincided with a general, equally secular decline in the political power of organized labor and social democratic politics, as indicated by long-term sinking rates of unionization, falling participation in national elections, an almost complete disappearance of strikes, high and steady rates of unemployment, stagnant wages, and rising economic inequality. If redistributive democracy didn't do it, what did? As mentioned, already in the late 1960s, James O'Connor, writing in the tradition of authors such as Schumpeter and Gottscheid, someone who was almost forgotten, uh, turn-of-the-century German uh, so sociologist and economist, predicted a widening gap between the fiscal means governments could, uh, uh, could mobilize under capitalist relations of production and ownership and the demands made by an advancing capitalist economy on state support. States under capitalism, according to O'Connor, had to provide for both the legitimacy and the efficiency of capital accumulation. The former through all sorts of social consumption, the latter through investment in a public infrastructure. O'Connor also expected mounting pressure on state finances by public sector trade unions, claiming that was 1970 claiming the same wages and benefits as workers in private industry and thereby exposing the state to the cost disease of the service sector. It is interesting that Daniel Bell, almost at the opposite end of the political spectrum, at least at that time, found much to endorse in O'Connor's analysis. Although he seems to have placed the emphasis somewhat like the public choice school, less on functional needs and structural contradictions, as I suggest, than on cultural change away from Protestant values towards materialistic consumerism or bourgeois hedonism, as he calls it. With hindsight, the route from the text to the debt state looks less straightforward than what one might have expected at its beginning. Empirically, deficits became endemic and debt started to accumulate after the end of inflation in the early 1980s. Before that, 
High inflation had substituted for real growth in wiping out parts of the public debt, thus slowing down its accumulation, which explains why Germany having a very low uh, uh, inflation rate in the 70s uh, started with the increase in public debt earlier than the others. It had also for a while uh, kept up employment, it being inflation. With monetary stabilization, unemployment became high and chronic, causing social spending to increase until, with a delay of a decade or so, it was again brought under control by neoliberal reforms. So far, public debt was basically a matter of the inertia of social security systems functioning as automatic stabilizers, not of growing demands of spoiled citizens for public handouts. In addition, however, the end of inflation ended what is called bracket creep in the United States, the movement of taxpayers into higher income tax rates with rising nominal incomes. Moreover, it reinforced tax resistance, in particular among the middle class, and lent momentum to calls for tax reform meaning tax cuts that typically benefited the payers of high, of high taxes most, Reagan tax cuts early 1980s. Overall, the fiscal crisis of the state turned out to be caused less by an increase in citizen entitlements than by a general decline in the taxability of democratic capitalist societies. You see how uh, roughly in the 1980s, uh, the, the rise of the uh, tax revenue uh, stops, then sort of moves around 37%, and then begins to decline. So um, while tax revenue had, until the mid-1970s, by and large kept pace with public spending, by the mid-1980s it began to stagnate, until after a short recovery it started declining by the end of the century. By 2007, Taxation levels were back where they had been 12 years earlier, only to decline further in the course of the financial crisis. A contributing factor was the globalization, quote-unquote, of the capitalist economy, which led to increased tax competition among countries, resulting in tax cuts for corporations and earners of high incomes. It also extended the opportunities for owners of capital to evade taxation, by moving assets between countries or into international tax havens. The OECD has, in, has last year uh, documented this in, in really dramatic uh, terms. If, in other words, the increasing fiscal problems of the rich capitalist democracies after the 1970s were due to a revolution of rising demands, that revolution had occurred not among ordinary citizens, but among capital and those in command of it. Another respect in which early theories of fiscal crisis had failed to anticipate what was coming was that they underestimated the possibilities of capitalist states to finance deficits for a protracted period of time by borrowing. Actually, the rise of public debt in the final third of the 20th century and beyond was linked to the financialization of the capitalist economy, which in part consisted of an explosive growth of its financial sector and of the amount of credit, of credit money it produces. Credit enabled states under capitalism to live with a widening gap between citizen demands and capitalist needs for infrastructural support on the one hand, 
and the increasingly powerful resistance of taxpayers, individual as well as corporate, uh, against having to pay the bill on the other. Financialization made it possible for governments to push back the moment when they had to do something about the increasing inadequacy of their fiscal means. Low nominal interest rates made possible by the return to sound money, 1980, led by the American Fed, helped as they made rising debt levels more manageable. In fact, they soon began luring governments into substituting credit for taxes as the latter became more difficult to collect. There also was an international dimension to the debt state, in that in particular the United States began to sell its public debt abroad to sovereign investors, especially the governments of oil-producing countries, looking for opportunities to, quote-unquote, recycle their surpluses and in return gain military protection against regional adversary and their own peoples. They didn't have to buy their own uh, aircraft carriers. Americans did it for them, provided that they lent them the money. In, in subsequent years, financial services became the by far most important growth industry in the United States and the United Kingdom. After the end of the Bretton Woods monetary regime, with the dollar continuing to be the leading global reserve currency, the United States enjoyed what Giscard d'Estaing called the exorbitant privilege of being able to indebt itself internationally in its own currency and repay its debt if need be by printing basically unlimited amounts of it. The rich supply of fiat money, of fiat dollars, that ensued nourished an expanding financial industry about to turn into the financial sector of capitalism worldwide. Aggressive deregulation of financial institutions allowed for unprecedented financial innovations, quote unquote, attracting capital from all over the world and became a major instrument for governments not only looking for new economic growth but also and desperately for access to credit. Uh, To credit. There it is. Indeed, as the overall credit supply expanded, it was not just states that became increasingly leveraged, but also corporations and later private households. Thus, the rise of the debt state became embedded in a movement of advanced capitalism as a whole towards higher and higher indebtedness across the board with public debt, in fact, amounting to no more than a small share of overall debt. Here's six countries, uh, beginning in 1995, if you go further back, uh, it is even, uh, uh, even more, because it is basically a steady uh, increase. Sweden is interesting, uh, where between 1995, uh, the overall indebtedness of the Swedish economy uh, uh, rose from below 400% of GDP to 600% of GDP. And you can see this, if, if you take, if you add the indebtedness also of the financial sector to this becomes even more dramatic. Uh, the uh, United States in 1970, the four sectors together uh, amounted to 400% of GDP. And today it is 900%. So going up all the way. How closely the management of the debt state came to be connected to the leveraging of capitalism generally became particularly visible in the 1970s when first attempts were made at fiscal consolidation. 
In the United States, Clinton had won the presidency in 1992 by promising to do something about the double deficit in the federal budget and the balance of trade. The peace dividend after 1989 seemed to open a window of opportunity for spending cuts. And the two successive fiscal crises in a country like Sweden, 1977 and 1991, were seen as a general warning sign. Uh, orchestrated by the United States through international organizations like the OECD and the IMF, capitalist democracies made an effort to break the upward trend in their indebtedness by returning to balanced budgets through spending, cut spending cuts and reforms of their budgeting institutions. Indeed, countries succeeded in the 1990s, as you've seen at the, uh, in, this, in the graph, uh, succeeded in the 1990s in bringing down public expenditure to more closely match their stagnant revenue. That was in figure two. No, here. Here we go. Uh, in the United States, this went as far as producing a budget surplus by the end of Clinton's second term. It should be noted, however, that this was to a large extent due to low interest rates made possible by monetary expansion to savings on defense in the wake of 1989, which were soon to prove short-lived in the United States, to economic growth, especially in the financial sector, blowing up the denominator of the debt equation, and to savings on Social Security as a result of both low unemployment and cuts in entitlement, the end of welfare as we know it, Clinton. The consolidation attempts of the 1990s responded to perhaps misinformed concerns among American voters about high public debt. But one can also assume concerns among creditors about the long-term solvency of sovereign borrowers. In any case, in an era of financial deregulation and expansion, pressures for fiscal consolidation presented an opportunity for cutting back the state in favor of the private sector by referring citizens to private credit as a substitute for previously free public services. Financialization thus not only required fiscal retrenchment, not only required fiscal retrenchment to ensure the further creditworthiness of sovereign borrowers, but also made it possible. And with the retrenchment and with it the retrenchment of the state. As households indebted themselves in compensating cuts in public provision, supported by low interest rates furnished by cooperative central banks, they opened the door for the private sector moving into fields previously the domain of government. They also filled a gap in aggregate demand caused by cuts in public spending, an effect referred to as privatized Keynesianism. Colin and others have analyzed this in detail. Far from being unsuccessful, the first wave of consolidation managed to bring down public debt during the decade from the mid-1990s to the eve of the Great Recession. <coughs> Helped in Europe by the Maastricht Treaty, that's how Europe comes in, on European Monetary Union with its debt limits. While hindered in the United States after 2001 by the Bush tax cuts and rapidly uh, rising defense spending. However, all of this was undone when the pyramid of private debt that had grown alongside public debt, and the more so after the increase of the latter had temporarily been halted, 
collapsed in the fiscal and the financial crisis of 2008. Here again, the close interconnection between the debt state and the financialization of modern capitalism became apparent as states found themselves forced to absorb the bad debt created by the private sector under financial deregulation. In fact, they had to take up additional debt for stimulus spending to prevent a complete breakdown of the national economies. Ironically, it was the debt that states incurred to protect their societies from the fallout of speculative lending and borrowing encouraged by government policies of deregulation and cheap money that made financial markets suspicious about states' capacity to live up to their obligation as debtors. When declining creditor confidence showed itself in rising risk premiums on government bonds from a number of countries, here, uh, <laughs> um, rising risk premiums, uh, it was time for the debt state to be rebuilt into a consolidation state. Now, second section, consolidation in hard times. Um, I notice we are, we're in time, David. Uh, 20, 20 more minutes. It's all right. Okay. It's not hard times yet. Okay. <laughs> I need something to drink here. Understanding the politics of the consolidation state requires a look at the political economy of the debt state. The rise of the debt state took place simultaneously with a general increase in economic inequality and was closely linked to it. The declining taxability of capitalist economies in the course of globalization produced a rising demand for credit on the part of governments while tax cuts for the increasingly rich well-to-do increased the corresponding supply. As a result, the debt state found it convenient to substitute credit for ever more difficult to collect taxes, to the extent that citizens remained willing to consider government bonds a safe investment. States going into debt allow citizens with high incomes to keep their money instead of having it confiscated invest it safely, collect interest on it, and pass it on to their children. Unlike what is sometimes suggested in the literature, therefore, the rich in rich countries are not necessarily opposed to government debt, as the alternative may be higher taxes, especially for them. What they must be concerned about, however, is too much debt compromising the capacity of governments to service it. How much debt is too much debt cannot be said generally. States default if they cannot repay old debt by taking up new debt. That's what they normally do every month. Uh, at, at, at what level of indebtedness financial markets will cease to extend credit to a state uh, to different two states differs as it depends not on the magnitude of the existing debt as such, but on the confidence of the markets in being repaid. As debt levels rise, therefore, debt states must intensify their efforts to secure that confidence 
to avoid rising risk premiums and at some point losing their ability to borrow. That's the game that is taking place. It's a confidence game. Normally, states can be expected to do their utmost not to default, as this may for a long time exclude them from borrowing. One advantage they have in this respect is that they may use force on their citizens to raise the funds they need to pay their creditors. Governments may also oblige some of their subjects, especially financial firms under prudential supervision, to invest part of their capital in government bonds on the premise that these are particularly safe. On the other hand, since a sovereign government, by definition, controls its own affairs, it cannot be obliged to pay back its debt. And indeed, uh, there's no legal way for creditors to take possession of a defaulting sovereign uh, debtor, uh, of, 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 of the assets of that debtor. In the past, uh, this was sometimes done by war, and, and it was considered uh, normal if, if a state sort of didn't pay back you send the uh, gunboats. Uh, you can't do this. <laughs> can't do this anymore in Italy, for example. Uh, <laughs> failure or refusal of the government of the maybe so uh, uh, states can repudiate or only partially pay back uh, uh, their debts, or they can uh, cease to pay at all. Attempts to establish an international bankruptcy regime for states that would regulate the rights and obligations of debtors and creditors and establish some form of international jurisdiction were so far unsuccessful. Fiscal consolidation, then, is essentially a confidence-building measure. Its objective is to make a state attractive for financial investment by making it fit for debt service, for financial markets to see. Consolidation is only exceptionally about states ceasing to borrow altogether. Even after a state's accumulated debt has begun to shrink, there will for a long time be old debt left that has to be refinanced on a revolving basis. States, therefore, regardless of whether their debt is growing or declining, continue to have a vital interest in low-risk premiums on government bonds. That's sort of the shared interest of, of governments in European Monetary Union. Uh, even if, Greek, uh, if uh, the Greek state looks like it's defaulting, then markets may think that that could spread to the rest of, of and, and then it becomes, therefore, the Germans, the French, and everybody else try to keep the Greeks alive uh, in order to, uh, to avoid these, these ripple, ripple effects. Uh, and also, uh, the states continue to have interest in low-risk premiums, since even a minor increase in the average rate of interest they have to pay may wreak havoc on their finances. Just a little example. If the average interest they pay on their debt uh, uh, increases by just two percentage points, and assuming uh, the debt level is roughly the same as GDP, that is 100% GDP, then uh, the yearly payments they have to add would be 2% of GDP. Now, if you, if you look at uh, the German budget, the, 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 the German federal government's budget, which is about 20% of GDP, and if that, that would be quite a lot of money. The, the German defense budget is 1.3% of GDP. 
So these two percentage points would almost sort of uh, would, would be a lot more than than the uh, whole the whole army costs, yeah. and <laughs> it's a lot of money. To, today's emerging consolidation state is a political institutional response to financial markets for a break to, to, to financial markets demands for a break in the trend toward ever <coughs> higher public indebtedness at a time when debt levels had been rising dramatically after 2008, annihilating all gains from the first wave of consolidation that began in the 1990s. To continue lending, financial markets want to be assured that public debt is under political control, certified by a demonstrated capacity of governments to halt and indeed reverse its long-term growth. Creditors' calls for consolidation reflect the, ex the experience of the last four decades that the Keynesian promise of governments deleveraging in good times to be able to incur new debt in bad times was not kept. That fiscal reflation had a wretched effect producing ever higher debt levels. That's basically the debate now in European Monetary Union. The, the Germans sort of think that we have to project the impression that the wretched effect is no longer uh, in existence, uh, whereas everybody else doesn't know what they do. <laughs> they are, doesn't know what they can do in, uh, un, uh, other than promise that they will, in three or four years, actually begin to consolidate. <laughs> The debt containment or reduction may be achieved by not replacing paid-back debt or failing that by fiscal repression, a combination of low interest rates with higher rates of inflation. I don't want to go through all these, these details, but uh, uh, basically what I want to say is that if we look at the historical effects to, uh, at, at consolidation, it basically happens through the cutting of expenditure rather than the raising of tax revenue. A budget surplus is preferably used to pay off debt or cut taxes to suppress political temptations to restore previous spending cuts. What you do not see in successful uh, consolidation regimes is that they go back to the previous spending pattern after they have evened out the, the, the thing. There, there's a, a fundamental change in the regime which, for example, in Sweden right now, uh, you can observe the, sort of the artificial creation of new budget uh, uh, deficits in a world in which they run continuous budget surpluses uh, by simply sort of lowering taxes so that uh, the, 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 the specter of the deficit comes back, as a result of which they have to cut spending in order to keep the deficit down or return to a surplus. An established consolidation state is one that has managed to institutionalize a political commitment and build a political capacity never to default on its debt, projecting an uncompromising determination to place its obligations to its creditors above all other obligations. It features a general configuration of political forces that makes spending increases difficult while making spending cuts on everything except debt service easy. Countries with a small state, like the US and Japan, a small state compared to their economy, are more likely to be recognized as consolidation states since a small government share in the economy can be taken to indicate both an entrenched aversion to state spending and the possibility for tax increases as ultima ratio in financial emergencies. 
So, so that uh, explains why Japan and, and the United States pay so low uh, uh, in interest rates on things. A country that comes close to the ideal is the United States, which combines powerful anti-taxation politics with a sacrosanct constitutional commitment never to compromise its full faith and credit. It's an interesting story about this. The, the American Constitution has this, uh, the full faith and credit of the United States shall never be uh, compromised. What it really meant originally was that the politics of the federal government should not be uh, subverted by the states. And then it has sort of taken on the new meaning uh, that, that the debt is sacrosanct, yeah, that they can never cut, uh, 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 can never apply a haircut to their, to their creditors. In fact, in the United States, as in no other country, it is understood across the political board that properly servicing the public debt must take precedence over everything else, including public pensions. Even the Tea Party movement contributed unintentionally to the perception of the United States as a solid debtor when it was defeated in 2011 and 2013 over the national debt ceiling by a coalition between the president and the Republican leadership, who at the time could not agree on anything <laughs> except that the United States must in all circumstances service its debt, if necessary, by incurring more debt. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and then, they, then they forced the... the, the, the uh, uh, the Tea Party to, um, to agree. I, I have elsewhere described the debt state as having two constituencies, citizens and creditors, or two peoples. In German, you can say a Staatsvolk, that's the normal people, and a Marktvolk, the market people. Debt states have to be loyal to both, with the two struggling over who is to be the principal stakeholder and who, in a fiscal crunch, has to give. The consolidation state settles that struggle in favor of its second constituency, its marked folk, by firmly internalizing the primacy of the state's commercial contractual commitments to its lenders over its political public commitments to its citizenry. In a consolidation state, citizens lose out to investors. Rights of citizenship are trumped by claims from commercial contracts. Voters range below creditors. The results of elections are less important than those of bond auctions. Public opinion matters less than interest rates, and citizen loyalties less than investor confidence. Debt service crowds out public services, ideal typically represented in this table. One could also speak, it, it, it's, it's also in the book, you don't have to write it down if you buy the book. So. <laughs> <laughs> one, one could also speak of two kinds of public debt, explicit in relation to the markets and implicit in relation to citizens, the latter downgraded in comparison to the former, or of two classes of property rights or entitlement, capitalist and civic, the former rising above the latter. In short, a consolidation state may be described as one whose commercial market obligations take precedence over its political citizenship obligations, where citizens lack access to political or ideological resources with which to contest it. That's the United States in, uh, in Lucy. Converting a popular democracy into a consolidation state takes time. 
as it requires disempowering democratic egalitarian politics in favor of solid customership in financial markets. The goal is to resolve the basic ambivalence of democracy as a depersonalized and therefore less capricious, longer-lived and more reliable debtor compared to the, to the kings of, uh, uh, of the past, uh, on the one hand, as a sovereign agent of wealth allocation and redistribution on the other. This involves tying the hands of the state by redefining the, uh, its sovereignty into a guarantee of its ability to repay its debt, for example, by making balanced budgets and enforceable constitutional requirements. While a balanced budget or a budget surplus may be presented by governments to citizens as a step on the way to government independence from financial investors, the, Swiss, the Swedish uh, uh, rhetoric, their immediate purpose is to reassure lenders that their investment is safe and that they can at any time be paid and repaid. Lower risk premiums may also be achieved by other institutional reforms to the extent that these credibly prevent future governments from returning to mitigating capitalist distribution conflicts by public spending and thereby jeopardize the state's reliability as a debtor. Preventing this, the debt state from predating on its lenders may also be done by international means. The verb of predator is to, pre to predate. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Or to prey on, probably. To prey on. To prey on. Yeah. Much better. <laughs> States have a collective interest to ensure that the reputation of sovereign debt is not jeopardized. International institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, and the European Union help potentially insolvent states with loans on condition they reform themselves so that they can credibly promise not again to overdraw their accounts. That's the European Central Bank. Discipline may also be exercised by hegemonic countries aligned with global financial markets, such as the United States. The latest case is Argentina. Having borrowed in New York, the country unexpectedly found itself under the jurisdiction of an American court, which declared the restructuring in 2002 of parts of its debt to be illegal, the case of the so-called vulture fund. Now, now these, these guys in these vulture funds have tried to use the civil laws of several countries to impound assets of the, of the, of the Argentine state. Up to now, uh, that didn't work, but it seems that if this ruling, court ruling stands, th this would be the first case. As all major banks have by necessity subsidiaries in the United States, any government using the banking system uh, faces the possibility of American legal action. Turning the debt state of the late 20th century into a consolidation state is not an easy undertaking, especially as it takes place in hard economic times. With economic inequality growing everywhere, debt finance social expenditure helped states maintain an appearance of egalitarian and even-handedness. Budget balancing by cutting social benefits and social services risks a democratic backlash unless political institutions are rebuilt to insulate economic policies from popular electoral pressures, as in a Hayekian or post-democratic world, or in the European uh, uh, Monetary Union, where the central bank sort of has, doesn't even have a government to talk to. 
it has 18 governments that they can play off against, against each other. Uh, mo moving towards a consolidation state is also made difficult by the fact that it's taking place at a time of low growth, if not secular stagnation, with austerity likely to cause further economic contraction. It is also made more urgent by the additional debt accumulated as a result of the financial crisis, as I said. To investors in public finance seeking reassurance that their investment is safe, economic growth is as important as balanced budgets. Both at the same time are, however, difficult, if not impossible, to obtain. Politically, institutional reforms and fiscal austerity are hard to impose under low growth and rising inequality on a society that still has recourse to democratic elections. While economically, they may further impair aggregate demand and produce a deflationary downward spiral. The, the, the remedy of the former uh, is to withdraw uh, authority over economic policy from the electorate, Europe, uh, and the latter is uh, uh, the, the central banks. I'll, I'll, I'll say something on that in, in a minute, and then I'll, I'll end this. Although the reigning neoliberal doctrine pro promises growth as a future reward for present austerity, for investors waiting to be paid, that promise may be too uncertain and the future too far away to make them feel better. The transformation of the debt set is underway, but is far from smooth. While interrelated through global financial markets, its local manifestations differ, although the logic is the same everywhere. Some institutional reforms have been implemented, but many are still work in progress. In Europe especially, consolidation is politically contested, in particular in countries like France and Italy. As creditors worry about consolidation subverting economic growth, and governments about austerity undercutting political stability, public debt has further increased in most countries and was still rising in 2014, even though nobody believes present levels to be sustainable. Currently, much of the refinancing of debt states is provided by central banks. In the United States and Japan directly, in Europe indirectly, by the European Central Bank lending to national banking systems, which in turn lend to the national states. Now that's sort of, in my view, the fourth stage, so to speak. Inflation, uh, the first wave of public debt, then the, uh, the rise of private debt, now central bank debt. Here we are. Uh, this is the total assets of the central banks in the world. And you see, and this starts only in 2006, in 2006, and in those few years, it's essentially more than doubled. Uh, Federal Reserve, uh, the Euro system, the Euro system will uh, really start uh, next month <laughs> to, 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 to add to this. Uh, so, uh, uh, the, the balance sheets of the leading central banks have rapidly expanded since 2008. Historically low interest rates and unprecedented infusions of liquidity into the world economy have as yet failed to stimulate economic growth, thereby making market-conforming reforms more palatable 
if, if there had been growth, they would have been more uh, palatable and helping states pay their lenders. Like public debt, there is agreement among economic elites that the policy of cheap money cannot forever be continued. What is de being debated is how long it can still be relied upon and how it can be ended without causing a new political economic mega-crisis. Yeah, that's, that's what they are really concerned about. Now, uh, if I had more time, I would now say something on the specificities of the European Monetary Union, but I, I, I also I already mentioned a few things about this. Then, uh, what I've started in the book, where you can read it, but also, uh, which I'm not going to read to you now because, uh, because we're, uh, we need some time for, for discussion, um, what I'm trying to do now is to sort of thresh out the basic, uh, uh, the basic outlines of the consolidation, what I call the consolidation regime, using the concept of regime that Paul Pearson applied to uh, the American uh, fiscal pol policy since the, the, or politics since the 1990s. And there are quite a few sort of things that one can now see. The, the most important thing is uh, budget balancing always by cutting expenditure, never by raising taxes. The, the other is uh, uh, never return to the old uh, system, change the budgeting institutions as well as the politics of a, of a society so that it is biased in the direction uh, of uh, a smaller state. That opens up all sorts of uh, opportunities for liberalization, for privatization. Sweden, again, is one of the most fascinating examples. We always, we still think Sweden is sort of a, a socialist uh, a paradise, but by now, by now, in the secondary school system, 50% of students attend private schools private schools that are funded by the state run on a for-profit basis by uh, several large corporations that have uh, now developed enormously uh, effective uh, ways of lobbying the government so that regulations are being uh, uh, withdrawn so that they can be more selective when they take in students. And, and all. So, so this whole game begins as you begin to consolidate, you, you uh, uh, almost inevitably open up uh, the public sector for private investment and private business. Um, you also have an effect that I describe uh, in the book, but here more, uh, in, in more detail, which is that mandatory expenditures, for example, um, expenditures on pensions, uh, as, you, as you begin to cut down the state, uh, their share in the public uh, uh, budget begins to increase at the expense of uh, investment, what we call infrastructure and soft social uh, in, in investment. That uh, enormously increases the pressure and builds coalitions against the old social security systems. In, in Sweden now, the pension system is on a completely actuarial basis, it's totally cut off from the, from the, from the public budget. And if uh, the revenue of the pension system declines, pensions are automatically cut yeah? in, in order to make sure that this shrinking public sector can still 
uh, has still some space for investment. Now, the Swedes, of course, start at a very high level, and they are sort of on a landing path that will take a long time. But that very same uh, 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 phenomenon is observed in other countries that that begin at a, with a smaller state and begin to, to consolidate. Finally, maybe I, I want to say something. We have looked at, uh, I, I think, six or seven countries in great detail how their budgets were uh, and, and how their spending patterns changed since the mid-1990s when this first wave of consolidation began. Britain is a very interesting exception in this. Um, Britain, under, under new labor, increased spending on, uh, against poverty, on labor market policy, but it, it was the only country where, where these things increased. But at the same time, the budget deficit increased. That it, it is not proof that you can do it during consolidation. You do it at the expense. In this world that we're talking about, where, where the revenue capacity of the government is sort of slowly declining, uh, in this world, you can do this only at the expense of uh, accumulating a legacy that you will at some stage, at some stage, will hit home at you, and I interpret what the conservative government in Britain does is exactly this uh, thing. So uh, thank you for, uh, for listening. And uh, there's more to be said, but it's all in the book. <laughs> well, we are very lucky to have persuaded Colin Crouch to act as discussant of Wolfgang Strait, not, not that he needed, not that he needed persuasion, in fact. Uh, and by way of introdu introduction to quote, I would say that between, between the pair of them, they have uh, pretty much reconstructed or constructed most of modern comparative political economy of the, uh, of the advanced countries. Of the of the West, so Colin. Oh, thank you. Do I need to have that near me to be heard? Can you all hear me? All right. Okay. Um, it's a great pleasure to to be asked to comment on, on Wolfgang's book. He and he and I have known each other since 1977, uh, before most of you were born. Uh, <laughs> next week, there's a great fest in Cologne to mark his retirement uh, from his present post. And at that event, I shall have to say a lot of nice words about him, which means I don't have to do it now. <laughs> it, will, it will go to his head. Uh, so I'll just get straight into the business. I want to concentrate on, on the contribution to political understanding of, of this book. Uh, because it's, it's called, at least it's in the German version. I haven't seen, I've only seen the British version outside, the English version outside there. I only know the German version. The, the subtitle was The Postponed Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. I assume that has survived. Uh, so it is actually about uh, politics. Uh, and in a way, well, not in a way, Wolfgang is definitely suggesting that democracy and capitalism may not be that compatible in the future. Uh, I, I wrote a review of the German version in, in a journal last year in which I, I said that the task he's undertaken is a bit like that 
of those people who wanted to demonstrate in the late 16th century that the earth went round the sun and not the other way round. Uh, people's everyday observations seemed against it. Look, the sun starts there and it goes there. Of course it goes round the earth. Well, we've got elections, haven't we? Of course we've got democracy. And very, very powerful people were telling them, of course, the, the earth is the centre of the world. Of course you live in perfect democracies. Uh, but uh, the heliocentric theorists and Wolfgang had superior and elegant theoretical arguments on their side. I hope the analogy ends there, and that unlike Galileo, Galilei, he will not be shown the instruments of torture and asked to recant. <laughs> at least there is that much <laughs> liberal democracy still has that much liberalism in it. Uh, the, 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 what I see as very fundamental to this is that argument that he did, uh, well it's gone from the board now, that difference between, that the idea that, that states, democratic states have these two constituencies they have to satisfy, the Staatsvolk, the citizenry, uh, and the Marktvolk, the, 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 the market people. Uh, and he spells out there the different sets of responsibilities they have towards these two groups. And it, it is very clear from that that you cannot say that, uh, uh, that governments only have responsibility to their electors. They have also these responsibilities to marked folk. And uh, it's quite clear as you go through his list which set of responsibilities are likely to be heavier as states get more and more into debt. And so it is the, the theory of the Schuldenstaat, the, the debtor state. Uh, I, 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 there's always a danger when one has a theory that one seeks to extrapolate it and to assume a convergence of everyone on the same point. And I, I suspect there is still room for debate about whether the Nordic countries will all have to end up um, like the United States, or whether there aren't different social settlements and social compromises in different regimes. Uh, but Wolfgang himself did say that the path to the consolidating state, consolidation state was hard and difficult, uh, and it may well be that different groups can get victories of different kinds as one goes along that trajectory. But at the present time, the most successful consolidation states would be certain states in Central and Eastern, European, uh, Central and Eastern Europe who have very, very low levels of debt. Now, in a way, these states are the vanguard of the new world. Uh, they have already achieved very, very small states. They haven't had to go through the struggle of getting rid of uh, liberal democratic welfare states. Uh, they started, as they emerged from the Soviet Union, they started with formal democracy that was already a kind of post-democracy in that there weren't really parties because the Soviet system had really destroyed all sense of, of what parties were about and what identities were. And so they, they've never really had uh, party systems grounded in strong identities. And so it's been much easier in those countries to, to move quickly to the consolidation state. Uh, it will be much harder to do that in countries with long and entrenched uh, democratic regimes. So I think what, what Wolfgang gives us is a terrain of struggle. He, he, he indicates convincingly the direction of that struggle, but we don't know at what point actions have reactions that um, lead to different solutions. Another, another part of the argument, which, which is, 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 it's not, I'm going, I said I'd concentrate on the political issues. This is really more of an economic one. 
Uh, and that is the, the changing relationship between debtors and creditors, where, at least where states are concerned and, and where relatively poor people are concerned. Uh, that, that takes place. And Wolfgang, at one point in the book, uh, compares the, the treatment of bankruptcy of corporations in U.S. law with um, the treatment of countries in great deficit. And the, the United States is always praised for having very uh, enlightened bankruptcy laws, so that if you go bankrupt, yeah, I've gone bankrupt, right? you declare it under some section of some act, and it's a bit painful for a while, but in the end you come out still functioning, and your creditors have taken quite a cut, quite a hit. Uh, and this is compared favorably with the traditional German approach to bankruptcy, whereas if where you go bankrupt, uh, you really ought to go out and shoot yourself, and it's quite shameful if you don't do that. Um, and this, this is considered, and, and I think in the past, accurately, to reflect a more enlightened attitude towards risk on the part of American law. Um, the same... The same um, the same leniency is not taken towards states in debt. Uh, there, something else has been going on, and that is a change in the balance of relationships between creditors and debtors from the what one might see as the, the original one, or certainly one that actually is still maintained, really, in, in U.S. bankruptcy law, and that is that a creditor and a debtor are together... In, in the transaction. If you lend money to a firm, then you share the responsibility for what that firm does with it. Because you have said, yeah, you're worthy my lending you money. Right? Uh, so therefore, if it goes wrong, you are also to blame. It, 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 you're part of the act. Uh, and that, that is deep in the original concept of the relationship between creditor and debtor. Certainly, if you have that kind of relationship, you will get slower growth. Uh, cr uh, uh, lenders will take far fewer risks than in the present uh, world, but uh, you, you will be spared deep crises. Uh, and there's a, a, a couple of recent books by two Italians, uh, Massimo Amato and Luca Fantacci, uh, on the decline of the creditor relationship, in that uh, what happened... Uh, through the extension of, of, of modern credit markets, those, those markets, those financial secondary and derivatives markets that eventually destroyed us all in 2008, what happened there was that creditors never needed to bother to know what was going on in, in the firms or individuals or countries to whom they lent money because the idea of, ha of lending it was not actually to be part of a long-term relationship around certain projects but to, to sell the debt to someone else and they would buy it not because they knew anything about it but because they were going to sell it onto someone else. So that, that infinite regression of debt trading meant that creditors no longer had any interest in what they were actually lending to, which means that when they got caught out by uh, low-value uh, mortgage holders and by states, they said, well, we're not having this. Uh, we're, we're, we didn't go into this expecting to lose money. Um, and and they, in the case of states and also uh, low-income people, they've been allowed to do that. Uh, and credit, debtors have had to bear increasingly the burden of the failure of the credit-debt relationship. And that intensifies further the forces that Wolfgang's talking about because the, um, uh, the, 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 the creditor 
who has to be, to start with, the holder of enormously large numbers of funds, the creditor is an extremely powerful person. They've become a constituency at least alongside the citizenship of states, and they have changed the relationship they have towards, towards debtors. Um, so the, the, I, I've got a few reservations about Wolfgang's arguments. I, I, I've said some of them about that. I, I think that there's probably more diversity among countries than than he recognises. Although in a way he, he does it by admit, by saying that it's it's quite a hard road to the consolidation state. He, he allows space actually for for diversity in that. Uh, also, I've got, I've got quarrels with him about uh, the, what happened to the Europe, southern European countries, but since he didn't talk about that, I won't do that. Uh, instead, I just draw attention to the many important insights that there are in this book. And, uh, apart from the main theme, there are, there are many sort of side issues that give you fascinating new insights uh, onto things. For example, at one point he discusses what was a big theme in the in the late 1970s, and that was the what was called the ungovernability. There was a big a big uh, anxiety, mainly on the political right and on the academic right, that modern societies were becoming ungovernable because people weren't deferential anymore and, and they didn't realise they couldn't keep having more and more and they wouldn't accept constraints. Um, there was then a left-wing version of this, uh, mainly articulated by Wolfgang's old opponent, uh, Jürgen Habermas, uh, we call it the legitimation crisis, that capitalism had, had, had got a crisis of legitimacy, that people didn't believe in it anymore. And Wolfgang demonstrates very clearly that this can be stood entirely on its head. It was the other way around. Uh, the ordinary working people never actually rebelled against capitalism. In fact, as the rise in female labour force participation took place, people were rushing to go and work in the capitalist economy, uh, increasingly accepting the legitimacy of being engaged in market relations. Uh, it, it, was, it was capitalists who ratted on the post-war democratic uh, capitalist compromise by saying they weren't going to be part of it anymore and rejecting uh, many parts of that deal, leading eventually, of course, to the, 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 the debtor state model. So it's a, a very interesting uh, uh, argument that the legitimacy of the post-war compromise uh, was rejected by capital, not by ordinary citizens. And I think a lot, we can draw a lot of conclusions from that. Uh, so the, the, the book is full of uh, very important facts and empirical arguments, but the most important thing really is that this is all theoretically grounded in showing, it's, it's not just saying that, oh, there's lots of powerful groups around who undermine democracy. He, in the model of the role of debt, the role of creditors, he gives us a a strong basis on which to, to articulate arguments of that kind. And in, in the end, I think that is the most important contribution of the work. Good. Well, Very good. Well, we've got time, plenty of time for some questions. So who would like to...
to the lady, lady, and then the gentleman behind. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Ulla Lambrecht. I'm German, but I live here. The Staatsvolk and the Marktvolk is fascinating, the, the two words. The question would be what we live in right now. Is becoming Marktvolk as far as the privatization of the National Health Service is concerned? So is there a way where we can remain a bit of Staatsvolk? and not become total marked folk in the health service? That's exciting. I, I don't know. What's the rule? Uh, Do we make up reply? the rule? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I use this, uh, these, these terms uh, uh, very sort of specifically in order to not uh, overly expand it. So uh, in my, uh, in my uh, schema of things, the marked folk is the capital market folk. That is the claimants uh, uh, to uh, public resources uh, in terms of uh, uh, interest uh, payment and, and all of these things. Now, but one can, of course, the, what you're looking at is equally interesting, which is that as uh, uh, the, the, the public sector and the, the, the state are being shrunk uh, more and more transactions that in the past have been conducted uh, in the medium uh, of uh, citizenship rights are now being converted into the medium of market transactions where you have to, uh, first of all, pay for them, but then you need providers uh, that are sort of profit-oriented and are willing to uh, uh, consider you a customer rather than a citizen uh, entitled uh, to a particular uh, service on the basis of your citizenship. Uh, that transformation, uh, we, uh, to me, uh, this is a classical case of, uh, uh, of the expansion of uh, capitalist market relations uh, into areas of life that for uh, uh, good reasons have been protected from being marketized under what we call the post-war uh, uh, regime of uh, democratic capitalism. These uh, services have become institutionalized as uh, entitlements that are generated out of politics rather than as goods that you can buy in a market. As you shrink the state, as you move uh, from the debt state, uh, that my uh, story of this is this uh, magnificent regime of public provision for elementary and even less, uh, even not merely elementary needs, on the basis of citizenship entitlement, this magnificent regime has been able or has been maintained for a while uh, by uh, by borrowing because it, it no longer uh, had the resources uh, that uh, were required uh, f for this. Now the hour of truth has come. Uh, public finances are being consolidated. The uh, historical attempt is made uh, to uh, uh, reverse a development that this uh, uh, 
really genius of political or political economy, Rudolf Goldscheid, unfortunately unknown uh, outside Germany and even in Germany, uh, not very much known, in, around the First World War. He, he was sort of an, an enemy of Max Weber. They, they were always uh, fighting each, each other. Weber hated him because he was a millionaire and didn't have to have a university career. And nevertheless, he sort of produced, produced excellent stuff. And in any case, Goldschein had this idea, uh, which he had taken from a, a very conservative German uh, economist, a man named Wagner, Wagner's Law in Anglo-American countries, um, he, uh, who, who, had, who had this idea that as a civilization becomes more and more sophisticated, modern, cultivated, as Wagner called uh, In Goldschild's language, who was a Marxist, uh, as the relations of production become more and more socialized, uh, the share of the government in the uh, national economy has to increase. So that a point will be reached where uh, capitalist relations of production sort of uh, uh, are being overturned or challenged by uh, this dialectical force, which is that they can be maintained only with a growing input of public services, both in terms of repairing the damages that uh, capitalist expansion does and in terms of uh, financing the collective preconditions for the private making of profit. So that's Marx, that's Goldscheid, uh, in, in, a, in a famous debate in the German Sociological Association, which led Max Weber to resign from it, although he, <laughs> he had been one of the founders in a famous debate. Schumpeter and Goldscheid sort of uh, agreed, Schumpeter, that that was a sound analysis. And that therefore, as Schumpeter said, at some stage, capitalism will have to disappear because it can't work anymore, because it clashes against the collective. And what we see now is an attempt. So you can look at, you can look at the rising share of the state and at the increase in state indebtedness as, a, as, a, as sort of totally in line with these early predictions. And now, in the 1990s for the first time, now even more, a fundamental attempt is being made to redefine the state so that this is not going to happen. That is to privatize infrastructure, to, to, to privatize investment, uh, and so on and so on and so on. That, that's the idea. And therefore, the thing that I've presented now is much bigger than it looks. It, it, it may look like he's talking about public budgets. No, he's talking about the rebuilding of the state uh, at a time where uh, the, uh, uh, the capacity of the state to extract the resources from the capitalist political economy that are required to sustain that economy, where that capacity has ended, and, and where it was sort of feasible to do this only through growing indebtedness of the state. That's the story. And, and in, in that part of the story, your story fits of course, very nicely. Sorry, that was no, a no, it's great. It's great. Um, Bernard Casey from um, <laughs> the University of Warwick and this place. Um, I want to follow on with this question of redefining and rebuilding. 
um, because I'm interested in efforts, whether or not I agree with them, of those who seek to defend or redefine the role of the state. And I'm interested in the way in which marked folk speak has been taken on by certain um, advocates of a role of the state. And in particular, I'm interested in this uh, concept of social investment. I don't know whether Anton Hemmerich is here or not, but it's something which no, I don't was going to be. No, is Anton he, is not there. No, he's not here. Okay, I can't see who's down in front. No. Um, but it, is, it seems to me that this is an attempt to take on a certain language to justify a certain role for the state. Now, um, those of us who are old enough will remember that, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, we used to talk about something called social protection as a productive factor. That kind of disappeared, and it's now being reinvented as this thing called social investment. We also find, and you mentioned the case of Italy, a case of France, people attempting to redefine what is meant by public expenditure under the terms of the Maastricht uh, Treaty rules and so forth, so that they talk about certain kinds of public expenditures being efficient and acceptable, and certain things should not be counted as consumption, which accounting systems require them to be counted as, but should in fact be treated as investment. I wonder whether you could comment upon this development, because it certainly has a sort of strength, and it is certainly being employed in certain places. Yeah, very little to uh, uh, to add to what you're saying, uh, except that when we look empirically at what uh, uh, we can identify as social investment in uh, the budgets of several of these states, then we see that public investment, public social investment, is declining. The the uh, the the for example, the spending of the Swedish state on uh, what used to be called active labor market policy in the last 10 years was almost halved. At the same time, the, the average sort of Swedish unemployment rate went up to between 7 and 8 percent. And uh, those of us who, uh, who have been around for a little longer re remember that in Sweden, uh, well into the 1980s, the idea that you could have more than, let's say, 1.5% unemployment would have been like, uh, I, I don't know, like what? Uh, I, I don't even want to, want to invent a gross example for this. It was so gross that nobody would ever have said that. And, and uh, uh, now uh, uh, it's the new normal, 8%. Yeah? Uh, so so uh, this decline in effort, yeah, sort of trans translates into a political, neoliberal political practice which would say that no, investment in qualifications is not something that we should do because individuals carry their qualifications themselves and so they should do it. Let them take credit, uh, let, let them take up money and then they pay for it and then they earn it back. The only problem is uh, that if you 
uh, like in the United States now, you have uh, you have sort of study after study. People uh, graduate from universities; they have forty thousand dollars in debt, and so they can't take up new debt to buy a car, which in the American way of uh, of things is absolutely necessary to maintain the American economy. You have to buy a car and a house, and for this you have to lend money, but to borrow money. But uh, if you if you have already borrowed too much, you can't do that. So, so there is, you, you could call this in, an, in a sort of uh, a way and a contradiction, which uh, if you make an effort through four or five or six steps, you can derive from Karl Marx himself. <laughs> you have to make a deductive effort for this. <laughs> yeah, in the absence of Anton Himmerich, who was my, my doctoral student many years ago, uh, I, I come to the defense of the social welfare state. I, I don't think it is a cop-out of any kind. It, it, it is saying that large parts of, of public spending do can actually serve to increase the size of the economy, so, and it, it that and there's a, a good evidence to show that that's the case, and it undermines what is otherwise the way in which one sort of automatically tends to speak, which is to regard public spending as money that is placed in a hole in the ground uh, and removed from circulation, uh, and th- this is clearly untrue, uh, and. Various kinds of public spending can contribute to the, the capitalist economy. For example, to take a very hard case and something that's usually seen as not part of the social investment welfare state, where unemployment pay is very generous, workers are more likely to be willing to take risks and less likely to insist on strong employment protection laws. Uh, and that can then be functional to the functioning of markets and in, in a kind of positive some way. So. Um, I, I don't think that it is just a question of, of, of people talking using Mark folk language. I think it's it's a, it's a genuine contribution. Yeah, yeah. Just in your last slide there, um, we've seen Japan um, in this cycle for many, many years. And I kind of just wonder now, is the kind of the fifth stage when the central banks actually start to have to write off their debts? Can you, can you say that again? I, With the central bank, this maybe the fifth stage is actually yeah. the central bank starting to have, um, yeah. have defaults on some of their yeah, assets yeah. they hold. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very uh, interesting and intriguing uh, to uh, see two years ago when I, when I wrote the book, uh, I, I wasn't aware of this enormous controversy which is going on in the, inside the central bank world. Uh, the uh, the, the central banks of the central bank of central banks, the mother of all central banks, which is the Bank for International Settlements in in in, in Basel's, yeah, I think you say Basel, Basel, Basel. Yeah. lots of, lot of Basel, the, the the Bank of International. They they get very nervous about this. They they produce these charts, yeah, but but the national central banks. Um, like the Fed, uh, t- t- a year ago, began in Bernanke's last uh, uh, year, he began to think about when to get off the tidal, mm. when to end quantitative easing. Mm. The first time he sort of announced that he would end quantitative easing, the, <laughs> you remember the, the, the stock exchanges plunged. Yeah? <laughs> and so, so now they... Now they tread more carefully. In, in the meantime, they discovered that quantitative easing 
especially the Japanese, might lead to devaluation of their currency, which they think is a good idea, because then you can start a competitive devaluation race. Maybe that is the fifth stage, and that is again deadly. Yeah. We remember that from the 1930s. Then the, everybody now Draghi is telling us that his wonderful new program by which he basically serves as a bad bank for the European banking system, <laughs> uh, that this wonderful new pro- program uh, will maybe uh, lower the value of, of the euro and thereby help the, the, the southern European countries. The, the reality is that it helps countries that have a strong export base like, like Germany. Therefore, the Germans do not complain. If, if the euro goes down... Thanks, Robert Wade in the Department of International Development here at LSE. Um, Colin Crouch made the point that we have bankruptcy regimes for individuals and for companies, but we don't have a bankruptcy regime for states. We don't have um, a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, for example, although At a certain point, the IMF even, and Kruger at the IMF, tried to push this. Do you, Wolfgang, think that um, uh, this is something that is the creation of bankruptcy uh, regime for states is something that um, citizens' movements um, should be focusing on um, promoting, and what chances do you think um, there are that such a regime might be established? Yeah, it is uh, difficult to convince citizens that they should uh, demonstrate in the streets for a bankruptcy <laughs> for, for governments. That, that would, would, would require a long story at the, at the beginning. But, but uh, uh, even more on the, on the serious side, um, the, the problem is sovereignty. Yeah, the problem is sovereignty. You can have sort of uh, um, um, d- 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 mediation procedures or something like this, uh, but uh, ultimately, um, whether a state actually uh, delivers at the end. Uh, we in, you can't even do it inside the, inside the European Union in the last two years or the European Mon- Monetary Union. So th- th- there were attempts to, to do this. Uh, nobody could agree how to do it and, and what, should be, what should be the substance of it. And, and then the, the, the investors have interest in this, the states have interest in this, the, uh, the strong states have other interests than the weak states. Very difficult. Alex Murray from UCL. Uh, I'd like to introduce a concept we've not discussed yet. It takes us a little bit away from political economy straight into core economics, that of productivity. Uh, it's the golden goose of, that will solve all of these, these problems yeah. in theory. Um, I'm interested to, to hear your views on if there's a link between what you're talking about here and the determination of, of modern productivity. It's been, at least in the UK, it's pretty much flatlined over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder what Hayek might think of, of our, such, our monetary policies at present. Um, I recall the headlines a couple of year, years ago talking about the zombie economy, the fact that there's, there are millions of people working in firms that might otherwise not exist in a, in a tighter, more realistic 
monetary uh, monetary environment. Yeah, um, I I'm not an economist, and and but I notice that e economists are uh, very much. Uh, in disagreement on on what is productivity, uh, who, uh, uh, where does it come from? Um, Gordon, uh, the, the, I, I was I, I became interested in this in these articles by this American economist named Robert Gordon. Robert Gordon. Robert Gordon, who who uh, claims that uh, historically uh, all the, the most of the possibilities of increasing uh, productivity in a sort of socially compatible way have already been exhausted. And 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 that that the, the the potential of technological change to uh, increase productivity in such a way that it does not result in even more inequality and unemployment has been sort of used. I'm I'm not. Uh, and I know that economists debate this. Uh, I, I I'm, I'm not. But but what I as a sociologist can maybe maybe say is that uh, within the European Monetary Union. Um, we now have this uh, uh, ongoing debate uh, about the Mediterranean uh, countries. Colin uh, sort of re referred to this, um, which uh, which are being told by the Germans and basically also by uh, by the central bank that they can increase productivity in two ways: um, uh, cutting wages, then the unit costs uh, de decline. Or produce better units mm. that, that justify that justify the wages. That is built an Audi plant in mm. in Moravia, southern Italy. Right? Now we know that both of this is extremely difficult, mm. and that in in uh, uh, that that in in my view, and Colin and I sort of worked on these things in the 1980s and and were excited about what we saw. Uh, how different uh, capitalist economies developed in different uh, uh, di directions in terms of their social systems of production. In in my view, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the in this sort of period, 1980s, different uh, paths were chosen as to how you uh, uh, combine technology with skills, with uh, training systems, and and so on. And it is extremely difficult uh, to, to copy uh, or, or to move from one path uh, to, to the other. In, in fact, um, and, and I think here, um, I'm, 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 I, I hope I'm in agreement with um, uh, political economists like, like, uh, like David, um, in, um, in different countries, different sort of social... Uh, uh, social compacts were made to uh, accommodate the political and social forces uh, so that uh, uh, they could live uh, with the specific uh, production arrangements uh, that these countries had produced. So in, in, in a way, the French um, always depended on a very strong public sector which uh, uh, very strongly depended on the capacity of the French state to run a deficit in its spending, whereas the Italians de uh, de depended uh, on uh, a relatively high rate of inflation in order to maintain uh, some degree 
uh, of, uh, of of em, em, employment as well as devalue their, their their government debt. So so these were sort of political settlements that are all sort of invalidated uh, by this sort of rigid prescription that now you have to become honest. Honest means German uh, style, uh, uh, first save, then, then spend. And, and these are very different economies that function in very different ways. And therefore you have these, these the, that is also an aspect of sort of productivity and the politics of productivity. So we've got, I'm afraid, just time for two more questions. I just see what the Sorry. time is. So Thank you. Very, very, um, quick, very quick. Yes. Uh, uh, then, uh, in, in your theory, you, you, you mentioned how uh, the financial capital has, has um, found other ways of avoiding taxation and, and, um, and that it's, it's a power group now that has consolidated. It, it seems to me that with inflation being as stubborn as it as has been and may continue to be so, that perhaps there's a chance of our entering into an era of debt forgiveness, perhaps. And I like, and I don't mean oh, in the form of inflation because that's not there. I, where these power brokers might actually yeah. sit back and say, you know, let's just kind of rearrange the puzzle pieces because yeah. there's too much stress and so forth. Very, very, very quick answer. Yeah. Well, maybe we take, we take yeah. the, these two questions. For, I'm really sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be quick. Runenstahl from Copenhagen University. I would just ask, uh, now we have David Saskis in, in the panel, to what extent do you, do you find this, this analysis that, uh, that you've uh, shown today does it uh, agree or does it clash with with the idea of varieties of capitalism? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hope we don't start a fight here. But. Yeah, we start a new seminar. <laughs> yeah, we start a new. Yeah, come back next week for the. <laughs> we'll do, yeah, let, 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 let's let's get an hour together sometime and we can just uh, talk this talk this through. Now, sorry, I have got a polite reminder. Uh, please notify members of the audience that there will be a book sale and book signing taking place inside the theatre. I think it's just slightly outside the theatre, but it's just here. So can I thank Wolfgang and Colin very, very much indeed for a marvellous, marvellous performance. And uh, yes.